ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Thief's Monthly Movie Loot, episode 20. Hope you're all doing great and preparing for the weekend. In this episode, I will close out the month of August. As some of you remember, I asked via Twitter for some film recommendations as gifts for my birthday, which was August 5th. And once again, you guys nailed it. So let's talk about it. A film set on a plane chose this category because of Aviation Day, which was in August 19. My good Twitter friend and fellow Puerto Rican Mike recommended La Guagua Aérea from 1993. This is a local film, one that I had heard about and wanted to see for a long time. Unfortunately, for numerous reasons, there's little to no preservation efforts here, and the availability of local films is usually reduced to bootlegs or YouTube uploads from whoever has it. So when Mike reminded me of it, I was grateful that I could have a chance to see it. We found a decent version on YouTube, and the rest is history. The film is set in the 1960s and follows an assorted group of Puerto Ricans that are traveling to New York for different reasons, hence the title which can be translated to the Airbus, which is a play on how the trip is treated by them, not with the formality of a plane trip, but rather with the casualness of a trip in a public bus. For a bit of background, the 1950s and 1960s were a period of significant migration of Puerto Ricans to the U.S., particularly New York. Political and economic changes here drove thousands of locals up north looking for the so-called American dream, and that is infused into the characters, all of which have different motivations for the journey. My friend Mike calls it a heartfelt comedy that incites laughter but invites reflection on a strong message of being proud of who you are and where you come from. End quote. I'm not sure how this will play for someone from another country, but what makes it work for me is the way that the story plays with our little quirks and idiosyncrasies like clapping when the plane lands or bringing a pot of rice on the flight and sharing it with everybody after tasting the awful airplane food or bringing a bag of live crabs for a relative in the States. But in the midst of the funny things, there is a strong commentary of how our socio-political situation makes us feel sometimes trapped, sometimes inferior, and sometimes ashamed of our nature and culture, but also how we cherish and enjoy the company of others and, like Mike said, feel proud of who we are and where we come from. The ensemble cast, which is comprised of numerous local theater, TV, and comedic actors, is solid. However, the amount of characters leaves little room for any meaningful development of any of them. But to be honest, I don't think that's the point of the story, but rather to make a point about our situation as a territory of the U.S. For locals, I would say this is a must-see. For anybody else, maybe a lot will be lost in translation, but I say most will have fun with it. If you enjoyed Mike's recommendation and his talks on the film, you can follow him on Twitter at MikeFilms21. He's very passionate about films and hoodies. A film from the 1970s. When I brought up this category on Twitter, my colleagues at the Defining Disney podcast recommended The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh from 1977. This is a film I hold dear to my heart. Back when I was a kid, we had several LPs of Disney classic films. I remember we had The Rescuers, Aristocats, but Winnie the Pooh was always my favorite. I'm not even sure if I ever saw the actual film, but regardless, I knew the dialogues and the songs by heart, which is why when the gals at Defining Disney brought it up, I didn't hesitate. Add to that the fact that it was an opportunity to show my kids something that I loved from when I was a kid. 
The film is really a set of three or four short films that Disney splice together. It follows Pooh and the gang as they deal with everything from Pooh's weight and obsession with honey to rain and wind and even Tigger. The gals at DD said, the writers did a really good job of connecting short to short, using weather to align them thematically and make a seemingly logical progression in time. It gets really meta in places with the characters interacting with the narrator, but it adds to the humor and personality of the film rather than being distracting. The music is also a strong point, with almost every short featuring a very catchy song that centers the short's plot or focus character. Overall, the film is very funny, but I think the main plus are, number one, the songs which my friends mentioned. I don't know if it was because I was first exposed to the audio, but those songs stuck in my head since childhood. The Exercise 1, Little Black Rain Cloud, Rumbly, My Tumbly, I can easily sing all of those from memory. But the second biggest plus I'd say about the film is the earnestness with which these characters interact. I find it so endearing and heartwarming that you can help but love it. The animation is very classic and the voice talent was pretty good. For what it's worth, I saw it dubbed for the kids. Uh, if anything, I'd say that the film loses a bit when it kind of shifts its focus to Tigger in the last part. I never liked Tigger, but the epilogue is sweet, poignant and touching enough to bring it all back together. As much as I love going back to the 100 acre wood, I enjoyed more taking my kids on the journey. For the most part, they were into it, they also didn't like Tigger that much, yes, and went on to watch the 2011's Winnie the Pooh and 2003's Piglet Big Movie afterwards. So good job, Pooh. If you enjoyed Defining Disney's recommendation and their talks on the film, you can follow them on Twitter at Defining Disney. They have a great podcast where they break apart every Disney animated film while trying to find the ultimate truth. What is the best animated Disney movie? A film featuring a volcano. Vesuvius Day was in August 24, and it commemorates the eruption that destroyed the historic city of Pompeii. I had a hard time finding recommendations for this category. I was more on the mindset of a disaster film, but couldn't find any available streaming. When the people at Best Film Ever Pod recommended 1990's Joe vs. the Volcano, I liked the idea because everybody used to mention the trio of pairings between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and to this day I haven't even seen Sleepless in Seattle. So although it wasn't available streaming free, I budged and rented it, and boy am I glad I did it. The film follows Joe Banks, played by Hanks, and every man working a miserable clerical job at a factory. When he receives the news that he's dying and only has six months to live, he abruptly quits. He then receives a proposition from a wealthy businessman to spend his last days at a remote island in the Pacific, and in the end sacrifice himself to a volcano so that the natives would exchange an important mineral with him. In the process, he meets three different women, all played by Meg Ryan, that in a way guide him through his journey. If the premise sounds crazy, it's because the film is crazy. The people at Best Film Ever podcast said, The whole film is largely metaphorical, the lamp that is banned by the evil boss, the three Meg Ryans, the jagged path that leads to work also leads to the volcano in the end. My belief is that Joe actually has a legit brain tumor and is causing this romanticized adventure with the girl he seeks, but in an idealized version. The one that, just like his luggage, will save him at precisely the right time. 
Joe isn't on the ocean with Meg number three, the exaggerated moon or the world's best luggage. He's dying and finishing his journey in life, floating between this world and the next. Some of the references in the write-up, well, you gotta see the film to understand what it is about, but the film is indeed surreal and bizarre in a sort of Lynchian way. Like my friend said, the film is very, very metaphorical. I'd say it works mostly as an allegory for fate and purpose, free will and life or death, but despite all these existential leanings, it never feels too heavy or dense. Instead, it feels a bit more whimsical. It is funny in its execution and earnest in the treatment of its characters. Sure, there are times when it might feel a bit messy, but in the end, I was feeling more like I'd seen a brilliant masterpiece rather than a mess. If you enjoyed Best Film Ever podcast recommendation and their talks on the film, you can follow them on Twitter at Best Film Ever Pod. They are also on Spotify searching for the best film ever. A film with the number eight in its title. This is another one I had trouble getting recommendations. More than one people came up with 8 Grade or 8 Men Out, both of which I've seen recently. My apologies to my Twitter friend, Christian Fuentes, who, if we'd been face-to-face, would have probably thrown me with something because of that. But when my other Twitter friend, Loser, brought up 1996 Hard 8, I didn't think much of it. I saw Hard 8 for the first time back in 2008 in one of those channel surfing strokes of luck. I caught it just as it was starting and for some reason I was glued to it from the start. There's something rather intriguing and intense about that opening with Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley that doesn't quite let you look away and this intensity extends all through the film. The premise of the film is simple, an enigmatic gambler called Sidney, played by Baker Hall, takes the younger John, played by Riley, under his wing and teaches him how to work Vegas. But when John and his girlfriend, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, get in serious trouble, Sidney has to step in, bringing back a past that he wanted to leave behind. Loser wrote to me, Heart 8, or Sydney, which is P.T. Anderson's preferred title, is an amazing first entry from the director, and along with his next two films, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, makes for a loose trilogy that showcases his early cinematic style. After hearing about the film for years, I finally saw it in 2020 and was not disappointed. Like he said, this is PTA's first feature film, and although there's low stakes to its scope and story, he still directs the hell out of it. There are several excellent and impressive long and tracking shots, mostly following Sydney through the casino or as he arrives at a motel. But aside from that, the overall use of the camera, the framing, camera placement is excellent. The film has also a great pace, a short but breezy for a hundred minute film with a lot of dialogue, but that's precisely because the dialogue and the performances are the real stars. Like I said, Baker Hall and Riley are magnetic, but Paltrow and Samuel L. Jackson, who plays a shady friend of John, well, they're also great. A great film and my number three PTA. If you enjoy Loser's recommendation and his talks on the film, you can follow him on Twitter at L-E-W-Z-R, where he shares his talks and performs the ukulele. A film from Switzerland. August 1 was Switzerland's National Day, so I wanted to see something from there. If I were to list some of my main horror film fetishes, films that deal with legends and the occult would be near the top of the list. 
So when a Twitter friend called Falk told brought up Senin Tunchi, a 2010 folksy sort of horror film, I was more than happy to indulge. The film is based on an alpine fable, which is explained during the first hour or so, as told by the people at Folk Told. In the original story, Senin Tunchi was a life-sized doll made by shepherds in the Alps who they called their wife and did all wifely things with. This is a crude doll made of hay, rags and a broom, but anyway, in the fable, when the doll takes life, she decides to take revenge on her abusers. The film spins the story a bit, breaking the narrative as it follows three herdsmen, one of which seems to be running from something, as well as a local policeman that's trying to help the girl. The people at Folk Told said, the idea of this beautiful, unnerving forest woman making a city man, a sheriff no less, fall in love with her is just another evil seductress archetype. They also mentioned the fact that it's folklore portrayed by the same culture from which originated as one of the reasons why they sought the film out. So as this mysterious woman is dealing with all these men around her, there's always the notion that things will eventually end up badly. There is a bit of an awkwardish tone to the film, but it maintains that sense of dread and tension that things will eventually go wrong, which makes it work. The pace might be a bit uneven, as it takes perhaps a bit too much to get things going, and I'm not sure that we needed one of the flashbacks or time jumps, but overall this was a mostly effective, odd and creepy horror film. If you enjoyed Folk Talk's recommendation and their talks on the film, you can follow them on Twitter at Folk Told. That's F-O-L-K-T-O-L-D. They are also on Spotify where they share their love for myths, urban legends, and fairy tales. A film set in school. Had this category in because of the start of school, and a friend from an online forum called Captain Terror brought up 1981's final exam. It follows a group of college students left at campus near the end of the school year that are being terrorized by a killer. As it turns out, Captain Terror saw this film which in his own words he didn't even like, but after starting a discussion about it on the forum, got a lot of us to watch it. According to him, his one enduring legacy at this site will be that I convinced literally everyone to watch Final Exam, and that he did. In many ways, the film presents itself and feels like your typical cheap slasher with its relative low budget and not so great acting. The characters fit the typical slasher template to a T. There's a smart good girl, the cute slutty one, the handsome guy, the dumb jock, the nerd guy. And you can see the connective tissue to films like Halloween, Friday the 13th, and even Giallo films. But despite this, I think it managed to successfully work within the tropes of the genre. Also, despite its surface appearances, there are hints of more care put to this than other slashers. The use of the camera is solid, particularly towards the last act, as our final girl is trying to escape from the killer. But aside from the camera, the way the film treats some of its characters, particularly that girl and her nerd friend, feels different and more focused on their humanity and vulnerability than the regular slasher. Even if the performances aren't very good, you end up caring about the characters. There's also the randomness and ambiguity of the killer, who doesn't seem to have any other reason than just the desire to kill. In a world where films try sometimes too hard to make absurd connections between killers and killed, there's a certain freshness to a film that features a killer that just, well, kills. Overall, this is not great, but if you're into this subgenre, I don't think you regret watching this.
If you remember, Captain Tedder is the same that recommended Barking Dogs Never Bite earlier this month. And you might also remember that he's not available on social media, so it's your lost people. A film with the word, left, in its title. I had this category because of Left-Handers Day, which was August 13. This is yet another one I had trouble getting recommendations. My Twitter friend Mike mentioned 2017's The Ballad of Lefty Brown, even though he hadn't seen it, but I'm always up for a western. The film follows the titular character played by Bill Pullman, a somewhat meek and not particularly bright ranch hand that sets out to seek revenge for the murder of his friend and partner, but ends up uncovering a deeper conspiracy instead. This one was a pretty good film. There's a lot of moments of introspection and thoughtfulness as characters reminisce over past glories and regrets, but there's also a decent dose of tension and action. Performances are quite good also. Pullman is solid, but I think Tommy Flanagan and Jim Caviezel steal their scenes as the former members of Lefty's All Posse. The details of the conspiracy he uncovers feel a bit half-baked, but I don't think its inner workings were as relevant other than to advance the plot. I also feel there could have been a bit more done with Kathy Baker's character, who plays the widow of Lefty's partner. Regardless, the film is well-made, well-acted, and worth a watch. A film featuring a clown. Clown Week was celebrated in the first week of August. Unfortunately, none of the recommendations I got for films featuring clowns were available streaming, but when I saw Terrifier was available on Netflix, I seem to remember someone recommending it months ago, so I decided to give it a chance. And boy, what a surprise it was. The film follows a murderous clown that goes by the name of Art, who terrorizes a group of female friends as they seek refuge in an abandoned building. I kid you not that this is probably one of the best horror films I've seen recently. From simpler things like the creepy makeup of the clown to the way the film manages to subvert some tropes of the horror genre, the film manages to have some good scares, but it's also gory as hell, with the clown using saws, knives, and blades to do his thing. For what it's worth, heads are stabbed, bashed in, and cut, characters are split open, you name it. So if that's what you're going for, then this is it. But even though the overall package is good, the thing that won me over was a simple detail that I like to share for anyone that has seen it. So warning, I'm going to spoil a key moment of the film. So if you haven't seen it and you want to go in fresh, just skip ahead a few seconds. Halfway through the film, the clown is terrorizing what seems to be the main girl. However, she manages to get the upper hand, knocks him over, and starts beating him with a 2x4. As she defiantly starts taunting him to get up, he slowly gets on one knee and pulls a gun from his ankle and shoots the girl. There's a simplicity to that that you just gotta love. I mean, it's not only the fact that they off the girl that we've been following for almost 40 minutes, but also, how many slasher films can you remember where the killer pulls up a gun? Like I said, it's a very simple detail, but I loved it. The main con that the film has are the performances, not that they are bad, but some of them are on the weak side. Other than that, I can just say that I enjoyed the hell out of this, and it has stuck in my mind since. So, that's it for this episode. Once again, I want to thank each and everyone that dropped any recommendation on Twitter, Letterboxd, or online film forums. I like to reiterate my shoutouts to Mike, Defining Disney, Best Film Ever Pod, Loser, 
Folk Told, and Captain Terror for their recommendations. Now that September started, these are the categories I have set up for the month. A film with the number 9 in its title. Any film that starts with the letters Q or R. A film with the word Fall or Autumn in its title. A science fiction film. A film with a primarily Hispanic or Latino cast. A film from the 1001 movies list whose ranking includes the number 9. A film from the 1980s. A film with a question in its title. A film based or featuring video games. A film primarily set in the workplace. A film featuring Native American characters. A film based on a comic book. A film with the word dance in its title. A film from Mexico. And a film from Robert Bresson. As usual, I'm open for any recommendations, but unlike August, which was my birthday, I will give equal considerations to films I have on my watch list or that I'm looking forward to. But if you feel like recommending any film that fills any of the above criteria, just hit me up on Twitter. You can find me at TIFCGT, T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or you can find me on Letterboxd as TIFF12. Other than fair recommendations, just let me know if you're listening, what you think of the podcast, or anything else you'd like to share. Now it's time for... Useless Movie Trivia Scottish actor Sean Connery is said to have turned down roles on numerous films, from Descartes in Blade Runner, to John Hammond in Jurassic Park, to The Architect in The Matrix, to Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. About this one, Connery allegedly said he didn't understand it, so he didn't want to spend a year and a half on the project. After the films became a success, it is said that he regretted the decision. So when 20th Century Fox came to him with the script for The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he signed up, even though he didn't understand it either. Having seen this in theaters, I think this is one that Connery should have skipped as well. So that's all for... Useless Movie Trivia. So that's it for episode 20 of Tiff's Monthly Movie Loot. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you feel like, share the link so that we could get more followers. I hope everybody enjoys the long weekend, have fun, and stay safe. Starling. Wild Clarice. Have the lamb stopped screaming? Dr. Lenter. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Dr. Lenter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. So you take care now to extend me the same courtesy. You know I can't make that promise. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Very important. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. We have the security system all set up. We have the big chance to do it.